tonight I would like to talk about uh, the, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Uh, William James, the great American uh, philosopher and psychologist of uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, <coughs> was there. Was he, he happened to be a visiting professor at Stanford during the 1906 earthquake. And uh, being a psychologist and a very intelligent person interested in human nature, he, he was interested to observe what happened to people, how people reacted to the earthquake, and how he himself reacted to the earthquake since he was in the middle of it. So that's what uh, I want to talk about, at least mostly. <clears throat> so, uh, James was a Harvard professor, so he lived in Boston and was just visiting, as I said, at Stanford. Just before he left for California, one of his colleagues at, at Harvard, who was born and raised in California, said to him, I really hope that when you're in California, you'll get to experience an earthquake. because earthquakes are one of the kind of characteristic California experiences, and I hope that you'll get to have that experience. So this really impressed James, and he was sort of kind of hoping that he would get to experience that. And he was thinking about this and sort of rehearsing in his mind what would, what would it be like and what would happen, what would he do and what would he feel if there were an earthquake. So when the earthquake happened, it was 5 o'clock in the morning, and James was in bed. <clears throat> he felt the bed shake. He felt the whole room starting to shake, and he kind of got up in bed and sat on his knees in the bed. And then the shaking got so strong that it hurled him out of bed, and he went face down onto the floor, and he heard the books in their bookcases flying off, the shelves. He heard the smashing of crockery and so on. Everything he said that was laying on top of something fell down onto the floor. He heard a big rip, uh, which was the plaster of the walls ripping. And then a tremendous roaring, thumping sound. So loud, he never heard anything like it before. It lasted 48 seconds. Immediately after it was over, he said, he could hear the murmur of people speaking out on the street. And it sounded as if everyone was speaking and together sympathetically. These are his words. Sympathetically, out of a passionate need to be together in witnessing this marvel. It was as if the earthquake had broken apart the barriers between people and caused them to spontaneously reach out to one another within seconds of the, of the event. James said that the experience was so strong that he had absolutely no thoughts 
He only had emotions, no thoughts. There was no room for thought. And the emotion that he felt was a mixture, he said, of happiness and admiration. He was happy, he said, because the experience was so immediate. He said it went far. He had, had known the word earthquake. But this word is an abstract word, you know, really. It's nothing compared to an actual earthquake. And the immediacy of the experience was, made him joyful because it was so powerful. That's what he said. He said it was so much more than the word. And he felt admiration because the little wooden house that he was in didn't fall down. And he felt an almost tenderness and love for this house, the way it was shaken so much, but it didn't break apart. So he said, because he was interested in, in analyzing his own experience, and he said that is what he actually felt. And he felt no fear whatsoever. And after, he thought this was surprising, so afterward he talked to people who had also been there, and he said very few of them felt fear while the earthquake was going on. Mostly they felt gratitude. Gratitude that this had happened and they were still alive, and that they had escaped harm. Now, some of the buildings in Stanford actually did collapse. They had big, heavy brick chimneys, and the chimneys crashed into the, you know, onto the floor and through the floor, and the whole building collapsed with the weight of the chimneys. And one of James's students was in one of those buildings. <coughs> the entire building caved in. He was on a whatever third or fourth floor. The whole building caved in, and he went hurtling through the floor to the basement with all this bricks and debris and whatnot coming in on his head, but somehow managed to survive this. And he reported to James that as he was falling through the floors to the basement, he thought to himself, this is the end. This is my death. But he wasn't at all afraid. Because, he said, the experience was just too strong for fear. And the only thing that he could do was surrender to it. It's funny, I was just talking to somebody today who had been in a gigantic um, avalanche in the Himalayas and was buried in an avalanche. And he also said the experience was so strong that a great calm and surrender came over him. There was no room for fear. So James said that uh, the mood of most of the people right after the earthquake was joyful. Everybody was excited and they wanted to speak to one another about what they had experienced. What were you doing you know, when the earthquake? What happened to you? They had shared something amazing together, 
and they just couldn't stop talking about it. Because so many houses in Stanford uh, were destroyed or they were worried that they might fall down because of what it, the shake, people didn't sleep in their houses. They were sleeping outdoors in parks and, you know, in the fields. The weather was great. He said there were the most beautiful sunrises and sunsets. And for a couple of days, it was like a big party. It was like a bee-in or a sit-in or a sleep-in or something, like maybe like Woodstock. You know, everybody was, it was can you, you can imagine what that must have been like. <clears throat> Within a few days, James was able to take a train to San Francisco so he could see what was going on there. And there, it was, of course, uh, much worse, because uh, it was closer to the epicenter, and, and much of the city was in ruins, as we've all heard about. And there were lots of large fires blazing. But what James noticed and what he saw was that the streets were constantly crowded with people in all kinds of clothing, some in pajamas, some all dressed up, you know, <laughs> in, in fine clothes, all kinds of clothing, but everybody was busy. Everybody was purposefully moving up and down the streets, uh, doing different things, clearing, clearing debris, uh, gathering food or water, doing very simple and elemental things busily. There seemed to be no dismay and no particular excitement, just people going about their business. Rich and poor mingled together in this as they never had before, because everybody was in exactly the same situation. He was only there for a few hours, went back to Stanford, then eight days later he came back to San Francisco, and already in eight days there were little shanties all over the city for people to camp out in and live in. There was food distribution. Uh, there was water supply, the beginnings of a rudimentary city growing out of the ashes of the old. And what struck James about this, he said, was first how quickly people began to improvise order out of chaos. And he said in his uh, speech about this that he said, there are lots of kinds of people in the world, all kinds of people. And among the kinds of people that there are, there's the kind of people who are really good at organizing things. These people spontaneously stepped forward and began organizing things. And other people sort of recognized that they could do this and sort of cleared the way and helped them out. And everything was very quickly organized. And he said, whatever was needed, whatever it was, within 24 hours, someone had appeared to organize it and provide it. The second thing that really struck him, he said, was the sense of acceptance and equanimity among the people. 
And he said this was all the more noticeable because he was receiving letters from his friends back east. And these letters were full of fear and concern and terror even about the earthquake. His friends were really upset at what he had gone through and what he must be going through. But it seemed that the people who were actually in the middle of the situation were on the whole fairly calm and happy, much more than the people who were writing from the East. So then James speculated that it must be that disasters are worse the farther away from them you are. <clears throat> when at a distance you can let your imagination run wild and think of how horrible it, be, it would be if you were there. And, and it's actually much worse than what it is in the, in, the, in the actual event. And of course, you know, when you think about this, it's an obvious thing. Thinking about what might happen and letting your worst fears run rampant is always a very different thing from something actually happening. Even if something really terrible happens, there's a totally different quality from the thing happening to the thing that you're thinking about happening. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but we don't usually think of that. So the anticipatory thought or the imaginary thought about something and the actual event itself are completely different things. Now, to be sure, James said, people in San Francisco, when they would talk about the earthquake, they would say, wasn't it dreadful? Wasn't it frightening? Wasn't it terrible? But he observed them when they said these things. And he said that it really seemed to him that they were saying these things with more of a sense of admiration and wonder than with dread. And they were much more uh, happy than they were sad and downtrodden by what had happened. Now surely people had real suffering. I mean, people were killed. People lost loved ones. People's entire homes and, and all their property was destroyed. So it wasn't as if uh, this was a walk in the park. There was real suffering. But, he said, because everybody realized that everybody else in the situation had also had suffering, Nobody dwelled on their suffering. Everybody just assumed that everybody else had just as much suffering, so you know, why dwell on it? So then James wrote that it must be then that the worst part of suffering comes from one's feeling that you are the only one suffering. When it's clear that everybody else around you is suffering just the same as you are, it makes the suffering still suffering, but quite different. In a way, it's, it's something to marvel at, rather than something to be downtrodden about. So he said he had to conclude that despite all that had happened, the mood in San Francisco in 1906 was, was cheerful and hopeful. 
And very few people, he said, complained, despite the very serious losses that they had had. <clears throat> so I was really fascinated to read James's account of the, of the earthquake. I didn't know that he was there. So uh, obviously I'm bringing this up because we can learn a lot from the point of view of spiritual practice from, from this. First of all, James's experience in the earthquake was what it was, I think, because he was so well prepared for it. He had gone over in his mind the idea of an earthquake coming, and he had sort of rehearsed it and thought about it with a positive spirit. He wasn't dreading it. He was sort of thinking, okay, this might happen, and here's what I'll, it will feel like, and here's what I'll do, and he was almost looking forward to it. And so when the earthquake came, he said, oh, good, here's the earthquake just as I was hoping for. And, you know, this is something that we can do in our practice. We can patiently and diligently train our minds and hearts. We can meditate on what we fear. <clears throat> we can meditate on the experience of fear itself, how it feels, what it's like. We can familiarize ourselves with what we're afraid of and with the feeling of fear. Keep coming back over and over again, over and over again to it until we make it into a friend. We can offer it a cup of tea. We can be gentle with our fear and our dread. We can stop doing what we usually do naturally, which is push it out of our minds and try to avoid it. We do the opposite in practice. We can work with it and familiarize ourselves with it. And if we just keep up this effort gently over time, little by little we actually get used to what we are, we're afraid of. So if it happens, probably it won't be so bad. Probably we will be quite amazed at how easy it is for us to bear this terrible thing so much easier than we had thought. So to practice like this is, of course, not at all the same as obsessing over our fears and increasing our worry and anxiety, which is what we usually do. That doesn't really help too much. It only makes things worse. And here, here I think, is where one can be so grateful for meditation practice. Because if you train in meditation regularly, not just occasionally meditating, but if you have a regular meditation practice and you keep coming back to the feeling of the body and the feeling of the breathing, and this becomes the way you live, to be in touch with your body and your breathing, This supports your ability to be with things that are dreadful or difficult or fearful. When you can really be strong with your awareness of your body and your breath, and when you will go to the body and the breath with awareness, 
because you've practiced it a lot and it's something that you do, then your ability to face something fearful without being destabilized by it is much greater. So that's one lesson we could learn from James's experience. Next, we can remember <clears throat> that just as he says, an anticipatory thought is not at all the same as immediate experience. They're very different. A thought is a thought. A thought is real. A thought is important as a thought. And I think we get mixed up on this point. But when something actually happens in the material world of time and space, it's completely different from the thought we had about it, just like James actually said. I never realized that the word earthquake is not an earthquake. It's a very different thing. Now again, this is one of the most obvious things in the world, and we all know this. I mean, we all completely get it that thinking about lunch is not the same as eating lunch, <laughs> right? We know this. You have never heard anybody say, actually, I don't need to eat today because I was thinking about eating, so I don't need to have anything to eat today. Because we all know there's a big difference between thinking about something and an immediate experience of it. And yet, we worry about our lives and what will happen in the future as if our worries and thoughts about the future were actually about an actual future. They are not. Not at all. They are thoughts of the present that express our anxious feeling in the present. When we're anxious about the future, what's going on is we're having anxious thoughts now. The future always arrives and takes care of itself. Now, I'm not saying that we don't anticipate things and make plans. Of course we have to do that. I'm doing this all the time. I'm all the time working on my calendar. <laughs> to the point where I never know like what month it is or what year it is. <laughs> I was saying to somebody yesterday that it was December 15th, 2011. And I thought it was 2011. <laughs> because I work on my calendar. I don't know if it's 2011 or 2012 or what it is. <laughs> Because I have to think about these things, right? So I plan. And it's very practical. And we have to plan. But I realize that planning is something I'm doing now. Now I'm planning. And I really don't know about the future. Perhaps there is no future for me. But if there is, when it comes, it will cease being the future and it will just be the present. And the present is always, has, has many features that I'm quite used to, and so are you. 
being in the body, breathing, sitting, standing, walking, eating, going to the toilet, looking at the sky, thoughts coming, thoughts going. This is what happens in the present. And when the future becomes the present, that's also what will be happening. The people in San Francisco in 1906 knew this point. The people in Boston writing letters didn't. <clears throat> now, so this is what James saw. And it would be nice to think that people will always react this way, you know, in a, in a disaster. But maybe not. Maybe For one thing, do we know if James was right about this? Maybe he was just a Pollyanna, you know, seeing what he wanted to see. I doubt this, because he was a very uh, astute observer of human nature. So I, I kind of, I must confess that I would find it hard to believe that James didn't see what he thought he saw. But maybe the people of San Francisco in 1906 were extraordinarily well-balanced uh, you know, people. <laughs> Which is doubtful. <laughs> but also, in other disasters in the past, and you know, in recent times, we've heard stories very much like this, actually. It's fairly typical. I, I was telling this story in Mexico uh, a few weeks ago, and people in Mexico said, yes, when we had our earthquake in Mexico City in 1985, it was just like that. But still, I guess it's possible that you can have a very bad society where people are really you know, so worn down by corruption and violence and fear that maybe they would not behave uh, this way. And I'm sure that that's possible. But it is encouraging, isn't it, to, to think that even in very hard times, and life was not easy in San Francisco in 1906, and even in societies that have corruption and oppression and demoralization, as that society had, even then, average people remain good and kind when powerful experiences occur to them collectively, and they respond with grace. It's kind of encouraging, isn't it, to, to think of one's fellow citizens that way, and there's some reason to believe that. So now I want to talk to you about a rabbi, tell you some rabbi stories. <laughs> maybe related to this, maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> but. They're just great stories, that's all. So these are some stories of uh, Rebbe Nachman, one of the great rabbis of all time who lived in the 18th century. And maybe the connection here is that um, he lived in Eastern Europe <coughs> at a time that was a very dark time for Jewish people. Very difficult time in place. And uh, he was a powerful uh, spiritual figure, perhaps, because of that. And he suffered a lot. 
he always had trouble. And yet, his main teaching had to do with joy and mystery. The joy part had to do with the fact that he believed that on every thought, in every tree, in every bush, you could feel God's presence. So how could you not be joyful all the time? And the mystery part, because, as he said, this little human life is like a small coin that you hold up in front of your eyes. And that little small coin um, can block out the sun. So our life is like a little coin that blocks out the immensity of life that's just behind us. And I've often marveled at this, you know. Did you ever think of this? <clears throat> you could be outside, and you could put your hand up like this, and your little hand could cover the entire sun. Isn't that strange? <laughs> There's the sun. You put your hand up. It's, it's, you block it out. This little hand, you know. And you, we all know the sun is this immense... It dwarfs the earth. It's immense. Powerful. But you block it out with just your little hand. So he said our life is like that. We're, you know, behind our life, through our life, is this tremendous power that maybe we could be noticing uh, if we didn't, we didn't so much insist on blocking it out. Anyway, Rebbe Nachman was very pious when he was young. And he was almost obsessed with the idea of having a, a direct experience of God. And so he would study and pray and just do everything he could to bring this about. So here's a story about one time when he tried to do this. It was the Sabbath. And he was a young boy, maybe 13 years old. And he decided that on this Sabbath, he was going to encounter God. So he got so excited about this that he woke up at midnight. And he, and he went to the ritual bath, and he got all dressed up in his finest clothes, and he went to the synagogue thinking, oh boy, you know, this is it, I'm going to meet God. And it must have been, you know, can you imagine being a 13-year-old boy in Eastern Europe in the synagogue in the middle of the night? It must have been very exciting. And he thought, this is really it. Nothing happened. Time went by, nothing. More time went by, nothing. People began finally coming to the synagogue for the morning prayers, nothing. And he became really depressed by <clears throat> that nothing was happening. Here were all these people there, and nothing was happening. He, he, so he kind of like slunk off into a corner, and laid down at the foot of a, a prayer bench, and started to cry. And he just wept and wept and wept all day long. And he became like numb from weeping. The tears 
blinded his eyes. He couldn't even see. His eyes were swollen from crying all day long. He didn't even know where he was anymore. An evening came, and the candles were lit for the evening prayer. And Rebbe Nachman opened his eyes, and through his tears, swollen from weeping, he could see the pulsing light of the candles. And his heart melted, and he felt a great joy and the peacefulness that he had been looking for. And through his tears, he saw the light. So when he was, that was happened when he was 13. The next year, his, his family moved away from the city where he had lived his whole life, and they went to a little village. So now he could go into the countryside. He had never done this before. And this completely changed his life. Now, instead of you know, trying so hard to look for the experience of God and not finding it, now he finds it everywhere and he, without looking. And every tree and every blade of grass, every stream, every insect, every animal speaks to him in God's voice. And he, now is when he begins to feel joyful all the time. And out of this experience, he developed one of the greatest spiritual practices ever, which he called hitbodadut, which means seclusion or meditation. And he would instruct his disciples to do this practice. He would tell them, go out into the fields and just walk in nature. And after you've been walking for a little while, just open up your mouth and start talking to God out loud. Don't say formal prayers or, you know, these kind of words that are said in prayer. Just talk out loud, naturally, whatever's on your mind. Don't censor anything. Just whatever's on your mind, speak it out loud to God. And if you can't think of anything to say, just say that. Say, God, I can't think of anything to say. I really can't, but I'm going to talk to you anyway. Just go on from there and see what happens. And even if you have no connection to God, do it anyway. And even if you don't believe in God, and you think the whole thing is preposterous, that shouldn't stop you. <laughs> There's no reason why you couldn't do it anyway. And if you do this, he said, you will find that the trees and grasses and clouds and hills will actually listen to you. And they will answer you. As you know, uh, in Judaism, the, the, there's commandments. You know, the, the spiritual practice is defined by the commandments. And Rabbi Nachman would teach that the greatest commandment of all is be joyful. And in the way that he practiced, this joyfulness was practiced in a very specific way <clears throat> by dancing. When Friday night would come 
and the Sabbath would, would be ushered in. They would have a communal meal. They would bless the wine and drink some wine. Bless the wine maybe again and have a little more wine. <laughs> <laughs> there would be some kind of a teaching. A little more wine maybe. And they'd be singing. And the singing would get more and more ebullient. And pretty soon people would just couldn't help themselves. They'd get up and they'd start dancing. And they were famous for this. If you ever saw the fiddler on the roof, you know how they would dance and dance. Anyway, once Rabbi Nachman said this, at the Sabbath dancing, when people are joyful, they will sometimes take someone who is sitting apart in his sorrow and drag that person into the dancing. And they'll dance round and round and round with that person until he too or she too becomes joyful. He said the same thing happens within a person. When he is joyful, sadness and suffering retreat to a corner. But it is a special virtue to go over to the corner and grab the sorrow and bring it into the joy. This is much better than leaving it off to the side. When you bring it into the joy and dance with it so that the joy and the sorrow will dance together, all the sorrow's power, he said, will enter into the joy. So, this is the dark time of year. Uh, and I know a lot of people during this season have a hard time. And um, if, you, if you would like to have a hard time, it's easy. <laughs> All you have to do is uh, think about the world around you and what the world, what's going on in the world. Think about what's happening in our world. And uh, the darkness will be right there. So the theme of my talk tonight, which is now over, <laughs> is how do you practice with hard times? So the first thing is maybe, as we learned from William James in 1906 earthquake, maybe Hard times aren't what we think they are when we anticipate them. Maybe what actually happens is quite different from what we fear. And maybe there can be an excitement and a joy and an equanimity, even in difficulty, if we know how to be uh, with it. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that even when there's sorrow and suffering, that doesn't mean there can't also be joy. Sometimes I think we um, mess ourselves up in thinking that I should be happy, I should be joyful, and if there's sorrow and if there's suffering, it should go away. 
I think a lot of people practice Buddhism with that idea. Surely Buddhism will help me to get rid of suffering. Isn't it actually about anyway, overcoming suffering? So that's what we try to do. We, we try to be happy and get rid of suffering. But in the darkness, in the hard time, actually that doesn't work. So can we dance with our sorrow and our suffering until it becomes mixed with joy? And then maybe it can be okay to have sorrow and suffering. So anyway, happy holidays. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you have lots of happiness and a minimum of suffering. So I think we have a few minutes. If anybody wants to uh, raise a point, uh, make a comment, a question, we can talk for about 10 minutes. Yes? I will do that. <laughs> yeah, she, she was making a, a comment that, that the earthquake seems to have thrown everybody into the present together in a way that we usually aren't. That's, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, so you all heard that, right, what she said. She's saying that Maybe there was more community in San Francisco in 1906 than there is in the contemporary world. And goodness knows that is possible. But, you know, it's hard to tell what the quality of life and how a person felt a long time ago. It's hard to tell, you know. Uh, and I think those kinds of comparisons are always uh, iffy. You never know. But maybe that's true. When we had 9-11, that brought the whole Yeah, yeah. In 9-11, it was similar, he said, that the country uh, was united for a little while after 9-11, and that was similar. Yes? My experience in the 1989 earthquake was that there was some of that here, that people were driving more kindly, they were, they were just being more kind to each other. Yeah, yeah. They were living sm more mindfully. They were just cooperating more. They were, yeah. I felt a certain togetherness. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. In 1989, there was a lot of this. And, you know, it's interesting because just like James was saying, I was uh, very upset about the earthquake in 1989 because I was in Japan. 
<laughs> and I was watching it on television, and I was really worried about my family, you know, and very upset. But they were fine, you know, and they were probably experiencing a lot of happiness. To, to everybody was nicer to each other for a while. But in Japan, it was, oh boy, terrible. You, you know, you saw only, the only thing you saw, and that's a great, it's a great example, actually, because in 1989, watching the San Francisco earthquake on Japanese television, the only thing you saw was the Bay Bridge buckling and cars in the drink and all these things. That's all you saw. You didn't see the millions and millions and millions of people who were just looking around and everything was okay and they were maybe, they had problems and there were difficulties, but they were going about their lives. You didn't see any of that on television. The only thing you saw was the worst of it. And over and over and over again, you saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, say something more about how to dance with joy. Say something more about how to dance with joy. Well, wait, I think. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. How yeah. To dance, how to dance in, with the. Uh, with the sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> say something more about how to dance the joy and the sorrow together. Well, I think the first and most important thing is. To get the sorrow to dance, you have to first embrace the sorrow and go over to the sorrow and say, come. And if you're going to say, oh, I'm not going over there, you'll never be able to dance with the sorrow. So that's the first thing you have to do. You have to not be frightened of the sorrow, and you have to be able to go over to the sorrow with a gentle spirit and say, it's okay. It's okay if there's some darkness and suffering here. Suffering is normal. Darkness is natural. Sorrow is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I remember uh, somebody, uh, Sue Moon, who's a, actually uh, a good friend of mine, and you might know about her, and she has a great book which came out this year called um, uh, So This is Getting Old. It's about aging. And in, and in that book, she tells the story of how she went on a, uh, so you get that book, it's really, really wonderful. She's a beautiful writer, and she, and she says in there, tells a story about how once she went on a retreat, like, all, you know, like a solo retreat, and stayed in a cabin in the woods for maybe a month. Didn't see anybody, didn't have a phone, didn't have internet. And once a week, she would walk uh, several miles to the nearest payphone, and she would call me up, and we would have an appointment to talk. And I'll never forget, once she said to me, um, I don't know what's wrong with me. Every day, when the sun goes down, I get so sad, I burst into tears. What's wrong with me? And I said, nothing. That makes perfect sense to me. Anybody who was paying attention would burst into tears every day when the sun went down. <laughs> Did you ever, like, watch the sun go down? Yes. It's very sad. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's beautiful. But the day is ending, right? The day is, this day is going. The end. It's going to be gone. It's going to get dark. It's going to be cold. And it'll be very different until tomorrow morning when the sun comes up. Of course, it's sad. How do you live any day of your life without some sadness and sorrow? Because people are sad and sorrowful, and it's a tough world. So of course there's sorrow and sadness. And when you're gentle with it and you see the beauty in it, then it will dance. It will come in. But, but, but that's the thing we're unwilling to do. We're unwilling to go over there to the sorrow and the suffering because we really were frightened of it. 
we don't believe, we believe there's something wrong with it. And, and furthermore, we do this crazy thing of saying, the reason why I'm sad and sorrowful is either because I screwed up somehow, and I, and I brought this on myself, or somebody did this to me. This shouldn't have happened. This is not normal. Either somebody did it to me, or I did it to myself, and this is terrible and should not be entertained at all. But no, sorrow and suffering are normal, just like winter is not abnormal. Shortening of the days is not abnormal. Like, who screwed up here? How come the days are getting short? What happened? <laughs> no, we don't say that. It's natural. We know, oh yeah, this is a harder season of the year, and it's natural. Well, we have those seasons in, in the heart. And when things happen, people in our lives get sick, they die, we're concerned about the world, things happen in the world, of course we're sad. And that's natural. Human suffering is a marvel, and it's natural. If we only knew how to work with it and be with it, it wouldn't be something that we feel is tragic and needs to be pushed away. It's normal. Yeah, but in the story that you told from the rabbi, that as soon as they danced with it, it changed into joy. Yeah. So are you saying it's a different kind of joy than we would imagine? I think that when you are willing to embrace your suffering as a natural <laughs> phenomenon and appreciate it, there's a joy right in the middle of it. That's right. Yeah, last comment from Rick, and then we'll stop. <coughs> well, it's like when I hear this story, it's that embracing that darkness because there is the day and there is the night. If I push the darkness away, then it can't be whole. That's right. So when you talk about holiness, it's my embracing of the darkness, and then I become whole, which I didn't know about until I became whole in the yeah, moment of the yeah, experience. Yeah, that's right. If you, if you, yeah, I agree. So in the moment of the experience, then I'm dancing because I'm whole, because I'm present, and I'm no longer pushing yeah. anything away or yeah. aversion, and then I meet, that's where I meet God. Yeah, so he said, in case you didn't hear, to be whole is to accept night and day. You know, a day is night and day, and that's how you're whole. And when you're whole, there's, uh, you, you know, you meet the divine, and you, and you have some happiness in your life. Yeah, and it's true. If you try, to, if you try that, that there would be no night and only day, then there isn't even day. There's only a kind of anxiety about pleasure, and that's it, you know. So, anyway, keep that in mind for the holidays. <laughs> and have a good time. Have a good time. Thank you all very much for coming. It's nice to see you. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.